if I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we make our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we come to verse 12, and I'd like to begin reading there uh, down to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 20. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, it's often said that Jesus Christ came to save your soul, which is true enough, but I suppose it is only half a truth. Because Jesus is not half a Savior, he is a whole Savior. And he did not come to save just our souls but our bodies as well, our whole persons. And this saying that Jesus came to save your soul can often be misunderstood. A lot of people think that perhaps Jesus came to save our soul might mean that our physical bodies don't really matter and that God's not really concerned with our physical well-being or health or even our physical salvation. Others will even twist that and distort it even more to say that what we do in the flesh is completely indifferent, and it has real no effect upon our spiritual well-being, and thus they say that all things are lawful for them to do. Well, that appears exactly what was going on in Corinth at the time. And so the Apostle Paul needs to correct the, the, the gross misunderstanding that the Corinthians had with regard to the salvation of not only their souls, but also their bodies, and the implications that has for us in the present life as we live lives in our bodies. Well, as we see in a passage, uh, you may recall that the Apostle Paul has been exhorting the church at Corinth to exercise godly church discipline over its members. Many of the people within the church were living in a manner that seriously called into question 
their Christian profession. In verses 9 through 11 of our chapter, he gave a somber warning that any who identified themselves with their sinful lifestyles, their lifestyles of continued and unrepentant sin, those people would not inherit the kingdom of God. And he called them to live in a manner that was consistent with the fact that they had been washed, that they had been sanctified, and that they had been justified in Christ Jesus. And now the Apostle Paul transitions from addressing the whole church as a whole, asking them to exercise church discipline, to now addressing us as individuals. And he uses their own words against them. You may recall, you may notice in your passage before you today that there's several quotations that the Apostle Paul has. And here I think the English translators help us understand what ultimately are Paul's words and what ultimately are the words of the Corinthians as they would, uh, they would say these slogans in order to justify their actions. Well, the first slogan that we come across is there in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. That's in quotations because that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's what the Corinthians were saying in order to justify their actions. No doubt this was a perversion of the teaching that we are not under law, but under grace. You can see how easy it is for us to say, well, since we're not under law and we're under grace, why don't we sin so that grace may abound all the more? This idea of all things are lawful for me can be paraphrased, I can do whatever I want. I am completely free and autonomous to do anything I desire. The Apostle Paul corrects that misunderstanding by saying all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You see, Paul teaches us very clearly that Christian liberty does not equal a license to sin. As those who have been set free from the law of sin and and death, we are now free to love and serve our neighbor. And we ought to only pursue those things which are good for building up, as the Apostle Paul will say clearly in chapter 8. You'll notice in Paul's retort that he omits that, that word, for, those words, for me, because ultimately it's not all about us. Those people who are saying that anything is lawful for me, we're ultimately being egocentric and we're seeking to live lives to please themselves rather than God. Well, he repeats this slogan again, all things are lawful for me, but then has a retort, but I will not be dominated by anything. Jesus teaches us that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, if we, whatever we choose to use our bodies for, whether it's for sin or for righteousness, we are presenting ourselves as slaves to those things. And for the person who says, well, all things are lawful for me, I'm completely free even to sin. The Apostle Paul says, ultimately, you are putting yourself back into slavery, to slavery of sin and of death. We encounter another slogan of the Corinthians in verse 13, which says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Here, this slogan will highlight the fleeting and temporary nature of our physical existence. And nothing is is clearer to us 
then, uh, of that fact than the process of eating and of digestion. Now, I love to eat. But it is interesting to consider the fact that you put so much effort into, pre- in, into creating a meal or spend so much money. Say you go out to a very you know, fine dining restaurant and you have this wonderful experience. And yet you know where that food is going. You know what's going to happen in the course of a matter of hours, right? It, 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 this whole idea that, uh, you know, we eat this food and then it's gone. It's expelled within a matter of time, right? Highlights the temporary and fleeting nature of our physical existence. And this slogan was used to justify the fact that they could do whatever they want in their physical bodies because, after all, it's temporary. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And I think, actually, this slogan should, should be, th- this quote should probably also include the saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The idea here, I think, is that, the point being, is that nothing we do in or with our bodies really matters because it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Here it appears as if they are, they are uh, this slogan denies the resurrection of the body. You see, we know that there were those in Corinth who were denying not the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of our bodies at the last day. And if this slogan is basically saying food's for the stomach and stomach's for the food, and after all, our bodies are going to be destroyed and not raised, then you could see how that idea could lead to all sorts of sinful abuses. As Paul himself recognizes in in that great chapter where he addresses the resurrection of the dead, when he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's ultimately probably what they were saying. And this euphemism, or, or this idea of food, I believe is a euphemism for all of the ways in which we seek physical gratification. And so that saying, that saying food for the stomach and stomach for food, you can just insert any sort of physical pleasure there, uh, replacing food with any sort of physical pleasure to show how fleeting it is and how ultimately it doesn't matter what we do. And that's interesting because we know in the ancient world uh, the, 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 the practices of gluttony and drunkenness were often combined with sexual indulgence. We have examples of these feasts that were held in Corinth uh, where they would eat beyond what they could consume, and they would drink in excess, and then for an after-dinner entertainment, prostitutes would be brought in. And so these things of food, uh, these uh, sins of gluttony, of drunkenness, and sexual indulgence often went together. And so we see Paul's answer to this slogan in, in the second half of verse 13, where he comes right out and contradicts their unspoken premise. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. God did not create us as physical creatures so that we might indulge our every base desire. God did not create us us as physical creatures so that we might gratify our flesh and the lust thereof, but rather... He created us body and soul so that we might glorify him 
and enjoy him forever. You see Paul's correction? The body's not meant for physical pleasure, for for sinful uh, pleasures. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's what we're made for. That's what we've been created for. That's what we've been put on the earth for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as proof, historical proof of the fact that God is concerned with our whole person, body and soul, we see, Paul referenced, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical resurrection of the Lord there in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see, if Jesus Christ only came to save our souls, then his body would have stayed in the tomb. But it did not stay in the tomb. Christ is risen. And if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. So contrary to the assumption of some of the Corinthians that God will destroy our bodies at the last day, the apostle Paul says, no, God will not destroy our bodies. He will glorify them. He will raise our bodies because if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. So that's why the Apostle Paul goes on with another rhetorical question. In chapter 6, he keeps asking this question, or do you not know? Or do you not know? Reminding them of what he had taught them, but for some reason they seem to have forgotten, or at least by their conduct were contradicting the truth. He reminds them of the present reality, namely their union with Christ. The fact that they are united together with the risen Lord. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, later on in the book, in in, in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is going to explore further uh, the idea that we are all part of the body of Christ and members one of another. And there in chapter 6, he's going to reference sort of the, the corporate aspect, how we as members of the body of Christ ought to use our gifts for the good and edification of, of the other members of the body. Sort of the, the horizontal aspect of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. But here the Apostle Paul addresses us as individuals and highlights the fact that each and every one of you individually are a member of the body of Christ. It highlights that vertical aspect, the vertical dimension of the fact that we are united to him and we are part of his body. He highlights the the, the privilege and also the responsibility that each and every one of us has as these bodies are united to the Lord. And so he, he reminds them of the fact that each and every one of us, our physical bodies are the limbs and organs of the Lord. And then so he says, well, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that profound truth that your body is a member of Jesus Christ? Shall you take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? You see, when we use our bodies for sinful purposes, when we hand over our members to be slaves of sin, we're not doing that by ourselves. If we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, we bring him along with us since we are, as it were, his limbs and organs. Well, this whole, the, even, even the thought of that to the Apostle Paul is abhorrent as he immediately says, may it never be. God forbid that we would ever do something like that as we, as we take Christ with us to fulfill our sinful desires. 
And he goes on to develop this idea of the serious nature of sexual sin when he reminds them yet again in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? You see, this type of sin is particularly egregious in, in, in the case of sexual immorality since there is necessarily entailed a one-flesh union in the sexual act. And here Paul, to prove his point, quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, our Lord Jesus Christ actually quotes from this passage to highlight, uh, the, uh, uh, to highlight how, how terrible it is, the, uh, the idea of divorce. Since the two become one flesh, uh, man seeks to put asunder what God has set together. And the Apostle Paul in, elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5 will quote from Genesis 2.24 to highlight the need for the husband to love, nourish, and cherish his wife, even as he does his own body. Why? Because the two are one flesh. It's as if he's caring for his own body as he cares for his wife. But here the Apostle Paul quotes from this passage in Genesis to show how it is that we can pervert and distort God's good gift of sexual union between a husband and a wife, which Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5 is a picture of Christ in the church he highlights how it is that we can pervert and distort that good gift when we pursue sexual pleasure merely for the purpose of self-gratification and not as an act of communicating love to the one that we've sworn and vowed our lives over to. This is why I think the Apostle Paul, in in verse 18, highlights the fact that sexual immorality is a uniquely self destructive act. He calls it a sin against the body. And we might wonder, well, why is it that the Apostle Paul could say that, that it's a, that it's, it's a uniquely self-destructive act? Surely we could think of other type of sinful acts that also are self-destructive, whether it be a substance abuse or even the most extreme form, even suicide. Well, he's not denying the fact that we can sin against our bodies in other ways, but he's highlighting here the, the, the way in which sexual sin is uniquely uh, self-destructive because no other sin forms a one-flesh union with another person. No other sin would form a one-flesh union with another individual. And when we, when we pursue sexual pleasure outside of marriage, we thus rob and deprive ourselves of the most intimate and deepest form of communicating love to another person that God has given us in this life. The, the highest form of expression, even highlighting the nature of the union between Christ and his church, we cheapen that, and we rob ourselves of that. And as members of the body of Christ, as, as those who are united together with him, we do the exact opposite of what we ought to be doing. So the Apostle Paul highlights the nature uh, the, the serious nature of sexual immorality. But he doesn't stop there. He also then points us to the reality of our union with Christ as he uh, goes in verse 17 to say, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, in stark contrast to the illicit union 
one, one might have with a prostitute, Paul highlights the spiritual union and the life-giving union that we have together with the Lord. That word there translated join can literally mean glued together. And if, if you think of the fact that we are glued together with the Lord, the glue that holds us together is the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I think that word, when it says becomes one spirit with him, I think that, that, uh, that word spirit should be capitalized because it's referring to the Holy Spirit. That is how we are united together with the Lord. That's how we cling to him. That's how we're glued together with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is characterized and, ex- and explained so beautifully in the Hutterberg Catechism when it says, although he is in heaven and we on earth, We are nevertheless flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are governed by one soul. Here it is. uh, Paul expresses how closely united we are with the Lord and highlights how tragic it is when we use these bodies which are united to Christ to gratify our own uh, sinful pleasures. And so, in, by way of application, the Apostle Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. This is the appropriate response that we as believers who are not united to the Lord should have. Notice he doesn't just say, avoid sexual, sexual immorality or withstand sexual, sexual immorality. No, he says, flee. And here I think most commentators are correct in assuming that the Apostle Paul has a biblical example in mind. We could all think of Joseph, who was in Potiphar's house, who was seduced by his wife, and when when finally there was no other way to resist her advances, what did he do? He fled out of the house. That's how we ought to act as believers. We, We shouldn't toy with sexual temptation. We couldn't think, well, we shouldn't think, well, I'm strong enough to withstand this. No. Get out of the house. Flee from any and all sexual temptation. Solomon has a lot to say about this in the book of Proverbs. And as he's speaking to his son about the the temptations of sexual immorality, he uses the example of fire. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Well, no, absolutely not. And so why would you want to toy with the adulterous woman? Why would you want to uh, uh, allow yourself to be tempted by her? Flee, get out of the house. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the context of sexual sins, says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Of course, our our Lord Jesus Christ is uh, using hyperbole here. He's not telling us that we literally ought to prong our eyes out or we literally ought to cut off our hands or any other part of our members that causes us to sin. We ought not to take his words literally, but his point is clear. No measure is too extreme in order for us to avoid 
in particular, sexual sin in our lives. There's no step that it's too drastic that we can take in order to avoid these things, and that's why the Apostle Paul says we need to flee from any and all sources of sexual temptation. And he goes on to develop this idea of the serious nature of this type of sin and our responsibilities towards it when he asks his tenth and final rhetorical question in this chapter, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We've already seen how sexual sin is a sin against our Lord because we are members of his body. We see, we've seen how sexual sin is a sin against our own selves as we sin against our own body. Now we see how sexual sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now previously, back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uh, spoke of the fact that the whole church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and there he was stressing the need for pure doctrine and a faithful ministry. As he says, if anyone wants to seek to destroy the temple, then God will destroy him. But here he's addressing us as individuals, or as Peter calls us, living stones who are being built up into the temple of the living God. He addresses us as individuals, that each and every one of us individually, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so here he highlights and stresses the need for us to live lives of purity and holiness. Each and every one of us, as it were, has the glory cloud hovering over our head. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God. And not just our souls, but our bodies house the Spirit of the living God. And so we ought to keep that that temple pure. And we ought to keep that temple holy. And so switching metaphors from a temple metaphor to to a, a slave metaphor, he addresses the congregation by saying, you are not your own. You see, contrary to the notion that the Corinthians thought that they could live however they liked, that they are perfectly free to pursue any and all physical pleasures and gratify their flesh, the Apostle Paul has other news. You do not belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. He emphatically states that we are not our own, but rather we have been bought with a price. They would have known what this metaphor was referring to because there were slaves in the ancient world. In other words, he tells us that we are bondservants of the Lord, whom he has purchased with his own precious blood. Oftentimes, scripture uh, people uh, will, will speak of the fact that we have been redeemed, we have been set free, and we immediately think, well, we're free to do whatever we like, just like the Israelites in the Exodus. Isn't that all about freedom? They no longer have to be slaves and serve Pharaoh. That's not what the Exodus is about. That's not what our redemption is about. God didn't free us in order so that we might seek to please ourselves. He has freed us in order that we might serve him. The question isn't about freedom. The question is, whom will you serve? Will you serve yourself or will you serve the Lord? The Apostle Paul reminds us here that we have been bought with a very precious price, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been freed in order to serve him. So, 
by way of application, he says, you have been brought, bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You see, rather than our physical bodies being some sort of temporary prison house of the soul, something that is here today and gone tomorrow, our bodies are something that have been bought with a price and are owned by the Lord Jesus Christ and are united together with him and have been made his own limbs and organs in order to be put to use to glorify God. You see, the things that we do in our body have eternal implications. So that's why the Apostle Paul says, glorify God, not just with your soul, but with your body. In preparing this sermon, it struck me that in these last two verses, we see two themes come forth that both our shorter catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism reflect upon, both in their first question and answer. The Heidelberg Catechism, of course, is what is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, it's that I'm not my own, but I've been bought with a price. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is man's chief end? that we glorify God and enjoy enjoy him forever. And so as we reflect upon the fact that we are united together together with the Lord, as we receive serious warnings about the dangers of sin and how it is that we can sin against not only ourselves, but also against the Lord and the Holy Spirit, as we are exhorted to glorify God with our bodies, we are reminded of the fact that our chief end is also our only comfort in life and in death. We don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price. And so let us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God, bring glory to him. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased to redeem us, both body and soul, and that you paid for us with your own precious blood, so that you might redeem us and free us from the power of sin and of Satan, so that we might pursue following after you in newness of life. Thank you for the grace that we have for the forgiveness of sins, but also the grace that we have to be conformed more and more into your image. So, O Lord, we pray that you would enable us in this present life to bring glory to you, even through our physical existence. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.